Hi, Nikolai. Welcome back. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me. So I have to tell you what, what happened to me. So um, I wanted, you know, to, to pick on YouTube uh, so a nice chill music for coding uh, with ni nice landscape. <laughs> and I found actually a nice landscape with Creed. But uh, it was it was nice the first 10 seconds. But then, you know, um, a crazy guy jump and talk about Java 19 all the time. So I try you know, <laughs> to, to mute it. But uh, it is more like, no, it was really nice landscape with you no know, Creed and beach and whatever. And then one was talking <laughs> the entire time about Java 19. So um, what I thought about is maybe I should invite you back because if Java 19 is even so popular on the beach, maybe you should, we should talk about this, right? Yeah, <laughs> I love that reference. <laughs> yes, uh, so um, yeah, I thought it would be fun. It would be fun to have a video where usually I'm sitting in this very room, uh, yeah. which is you know, which is a, it's it's an okay room, but it's, I mean, it's still just a small room, so it doesn't make for the best uh, scenery. So when I was in Crete on holiday, I was like, "Nah, I gotta take this opportunity. We gotta make a video here. It's just like it looks too great not to take the opportunity." Uh, and I think, yeah, I think people liked it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> I glad you enjoyed it too. Yeah, but uh, was it a lot of work to do this, actually? I think so, right? Well, so typically uh, um, an episode takes me about a day or two to, to script, depending on how much I know the topic. Um, and then it takes, you know, it, like here in my room, I've got everything set up pretty quickly. Yeah. So I can record in about an hour or two a video, which is usually between like eight and 12 minutes long. Uh, yeah, but on the outside, it's a little more challenging, right? So you have to move stuff around. I didn't want to always be in the same scenery. You have to check, like, the wind was already a problem in the recordings, but exactly. actually it was, like, the better places. So there was, like, much worse wind in other places, so I had to check with that. So I think recording took, like, maybe half a day, maybe a little longer. And then editing was not done by me. That was done by my colleague, Billy. So uh, basically, I did, like, you know, like that's, that's usually another two days. So okay. I would say roughly I did half the work uh, on Crete, and he did half the work in his office. Okay, so, okay, because um, you also changed location, so it was more challenging, right? Yeah, exactly. Because otherwise it would have been, I don't know, it would have been a bit too boring. Because I was, I was wandering around like the hotel. I was like, wow, there's a lot, lots of great uh, opportunities to to do a recording. I'm not sure which one to pick, and I said, you know, let's pick all of them. Let's just move around. Let's have a different scene cool. for each different topic. Yeah, and you shoot it with iPhone or with what? No, no, it's my it's my actual camera. I took like a tripod, and oh, okay. I have a Lumix G7, which is. Uh, a smaller camera, so like the uh, the Canon's a little bit larger. So mm -hmm. this is a, is a smaller camera, has a smaller um, chip and a smaller body. Um, but you know, it's all it's all holiday camera anyway, so it's the same camera. So that's good. Um, okay. So that was that, and I had uh, mic the mic with me, which did like an okay job given the wind. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So uh, okay, so you took your Java nineteen holiday camera with you. It's nice. Exactly. So. so um, People ask me all the time about Java 1. Will you actually attend Java 1, you personally? Yeah. Yes, I personally will attend Java 1. This is my first Java 1 ever. Okay. So I'm really looking forward to that. Very good. So we have scheduled an episode after that, so I can ask you questions, you know, how, how it was, what was, how was Las Vegas. As I know you, you will spend all the time in, in, in meetings and sessions and won't even see Las Vegas, but let's, let's see, right, uh, what happens. Yeah, so actually I blocked a little bit like actually, Java is like it's a long conference, right? But I managed to block almost a week in my calendar oh. uh, because, like, as I, I think I already told you, right? So when uh, I have a wife and kid, and when I, like she works and travels as well, so whenever one of us travels, the other person basically becomes like the sole parent for a couple of days. Yeah, you know, which makes like everyday business just more more complicated, right? Because yeah. we're used to 
one of us bring her to school, the other one picking her up in the afternoon, stuff like that. But if you're like a solo parent for a week, you have to do all of that yourself, which just limits the amount of time that you have for, you know, like regular work and going, you know, just getting grocery shopping and everything. So solo parent so, is singleton, right? For Java listeners here, right? Exactly. Yeah, okay. exactly. So the okay. singleton parent, but just for a week. So for a yeah. couple of days. And that's why we usually try to keep this trips short so usually when there's like an after conference um event for speakers like 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 javazon does great things i think j focus as well they're like like go hiking and stuff that's amazing i've never done those because it feels like it's okay to be away for four days of work it would feel weird to then say and also have to like go hiking for three days in sweden while you're home alone so i've never done this but for java java's uh, one i managed to like put an entire week aside because like I don't want to fly across the ocean for just the conference. I, I would like to have at least like a day or two to see something else. I mean, the states have it's a, it's a politically challenging country or okay. challenged country rather, okay. but it's a nice country too and nice uh, uh, nice landscape and nice things to see. So I hope um, to have the opportunity to see a little bit more than just Las Vegas. Okay, so um, we will, we should schedule an episode uh, after Java One, and um, I'm really curious about yeah. your opinions. Um, Let's do that. So, um, so you will not be there? Uh, not. I somehow I missed that. So um, I missed. Um, but there are no call for papers, right? Are there no? Uh, yeah, no. So yeah. The, so the thing with uh, with Java One is that um, it's like the first time in a long time that it's happened. Okay. And so we're basically starting this up on short notice, like running a huge, like I run my own conference. It's very small. You still need like half a year for a very small conference. For a huge one like this. Basically, like like the big conferences, they go back to back. Like you run the one conference, you take a couple of weeks off, and then the work starts on the next one. And that was not the case here, just because like it was pretty late into that one year window that you need to for such a large conference that uh, that we we knew that we could start working on this again. And that's why it has all been uh, on somewhat shorter notice. And so this year will be we'll be focusing on just getting the event out there. Okay. And then next year you can expect like the more regular like call for papers. Ah, okay. Stuff. So the, right now it's not Java One, it's Java Half, right? It's the official. Name. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, let's let's call it Java Zero Point Nine. Oh, Zero Point Nine. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> now now we have it. So um, just uh briefly because you mentioned the conference and traveling, what happened to me once? I attended in one year. Uh, this was a community event, Sun in New York. Then in Las Vegas was the server side and Java One. And because mm -hmm. I had no time for, because of my re regular projects, I spent the shortest possible amount of time on uh, on each conference this year. Mm -hmm. And the uh, the security people at uh, at the airport say, "What you did there?" And so this was conference. So, like, but you spent just one day. It's impossible. <laughs> no one does that. <laughs> and and they suspected me. You know, uh, they 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 asked me whether I'm I'm a criminal or whatever. And I, actually, it was pretty serious. I couldn't move out, so um, uh, for unknown reasons, Whoa. I was like, "Well, no, the 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 pattern, what I did, just spending you no know, the least amount of time of conference, just picking and 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 going home, was not not what the AI back then liked, and um and I, it semi trouble, so I couldn't book online flights. So uh, your strategy is better, you not know, to spend two two weeks in Las Vegas or one week or whatever you're doing, but yeah, yeah, otherwise you 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 become suspicious. Yeah, no, that's true. Like in the past, my wife uh, traveled even more. And uh, she occasionally had issue with her credit card, so that payments would be declined. Because what's, it cannot be the case that you have been like I don't know, like like in, in South Africa one day, and the next day you want to book something in Morocco. 
No. Uh, and then, the, and then two days later, like in China, that doesn't happen. She's like, no, that's that's actually what I do for. I'm sorry, that's what I do for a living. Okay. And uh, so yeah, so so credit cards would decline payment because they would like they would trigger these um these uh what's anti theft or anti abuse law yeah. uh, systems whatever uh so that they have in place. Uh, to to minimize the amount of money that gets funneled out of the credit card system by okay. thieves. So, uh, but now uh, back to the uh, to the to the to the real topic. I wanted to say boring, but it's not boring at all. Java nineteen and uh, yeah. and and Java nineteen is actually is going to be a big release. And uh, what's excited mm-hmm. me the most is uh, or the most uh, what I'm waiting uh, for for the longest. I would say are the virtual threats, right? Uh, so which uh, were called green threats back then or were similar to the green threats um mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether you whether you know it but at the beginning of java we had uh, green threats and then yeah. everyone was like, really excited about the native threats and um there was even um i don't know when it was jdk 1.1 or 1.2 you could even switch between both depending on your hardware sometimes it was better to use green threats and sometimes it was better to use the native threats and now it's a full circle everyone is going to to, to uh, or everyone is excited me as well to to have green threats again right well, there's like a well, there's a critical difference there though. So green threats were, um, you had a, a certain number of green threats, but they would all like there was an, uh, a one to n relationship, meaning mm-hmm. that uh, let's say uh, you had four green threats and two actual operating system threats, mm-hmm. then you would have two green threats on the one OS threat and two green threats on the other OS threat. So they could not change the OS threat they were ever running on. So always the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, operating system threat would would run the same green thread, um, and that's like when you talk when you when you talk about uh, um, virtual threats for scalability, mm-hmm. then that would be a serious problem because that would mean you cannot just throw, let's say like you know like the 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 loom claim basically you can just run a million threads, mm-hmm. um, which which is true, but you know it's over also like it's not necessarily what everybody wants to do. But let's just pick that number because like it's a nice like it's a very extreme number. So let's say you run a million threads. But you only have underlying, I don't know, like 16 cores or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you would probably have 16 or maybe 32 operating system threads for running your million threads. Now, if um, like every, what would that be? Like 30,000 uh, virtual threads would always comp- would always always have to be executed on the same actual operating system thread. And that would mean just one long-running task can lead to 29,999 other tasks starving. Mm-hmm. Potentially indefinitely, mm-hmm. and that's not that's that's not great for scalability, right? That would be a serious issue. So if you would have a few long running tasks, and a few in this scenario would be like a handful, mm-hmm. um, they could block whatever, like a third of your other tasks out completely. So uh, the assumption basically is that in a modern system, you have like a mixture of more long running stuff and more shorter running stuff. You have stuff, a lot of stuff that waits a long time because if you don't, then virtual threads don't uh, won't improve anything. Um, so you have a lot of stuff where you just go go to the file system, which is like a couple of of calls within Java, and then you're waiting for the file system. And so those very few tasks, sorry, those very few steps within Java code, you want to take them as early and as fast as possible. And you don't want to be waiting uh, for the long-running whatever computation that sits uh, in, a, in another green thread that uh, on the same operating system thread. So that's mm-hmm. a very important difference. Um, yeah, but you're right. Like in the, Otherwise, they have the similarity. They have the similarity that they share the uh, same underlying thread. So the more threads we get, the more problematic green threads would become, right? Because the likelihood is, uh, is almost there then that one of the 30,000 threads will execute longer and all others have to wait. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's at least my conjecture. I mean, that's definitely a computer science problem that surely somebody looked at and analyzed. Uh, but that at least would be uh, my understanding that that would probably be. And I'm, I'm not leaning on that science, right? I'm just saying that it's my yeah. gut feeling that that would be a problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and we could also get even deadlocks, right? Because if they are bound to one and the other waits on the others and they both are waiting, there will be no resolution. So, um, yeah. So I would say the uh, the virtual threads or Project Loom, there is no direct relation between the virtual thread and the actual thread, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, that's very important. Uh, I sometimes get questions, uh, like on Twitter, somebody asked, like, what happens to the operating system thread? How can we, what do we know about the operating system thread? And my answer is, uh, we don't care. Like, first of all, like, there's a strong barrier between that. I don't know 100%, but I think it's not even possible to get any information about the operating system thread from within the Java code that runs in a virtual thread. Well, probably there is some... Uh, um, there might be some MX bean, whatever, that you can yeah. get some information. But like regular APIs, like if you add, ask the threat, what ID do I have and what's the current threat, all of that. All of that things, if you're, if you're on a virtual threat and you ask a threat API about anything, it will only give you the virtual threat information. You will not be able to understand it to get through to the underlying operating system threat and get any information about that. Um, which is as it should be. I mean, it's interesting to think about how this works and the, the, the you know, the... Um, the mounting on of a virtual thread on an operating system thread and the unmounting when it waits and all that. And that's very like it's, it's technically interesting and it makes sense to talk about that to get a better understanding. But ultimately, that's very much an implementation detail that we should not care about. Just like we don't care about how the operating system swaps um, memory pages yeah. in and out, we should not care about this really. Like it's fun to talk about, um, but we should dig that deep. It doesn't matter. Um, ideally, we would never need to know about that, and so we just ignore what exactly is going on within our virtual threads. So we can really just think of them as just regular threads, just we can have more of them. Mm -hmm. The question is, why not switch completely to Project Loom always, right? So we could actually... Oh, yeah, sure. So that that's, I think, that's, that's entirely feasible. So, so my understanding is um, that the scalability benefits that Loom promises you, they only occur... Uh, for certain projects and under certain circumstances, right? So they only yeah. happen if you wait a lot. Like mm -hmm. if you if you keep your CPUs busy, you won't be uh, uh, you won't benefit from from virtual threads. But also, to my understanding, the overhead is pretty minimal. So mm -hmm. my understanding would be that it's probably easier to just like I'm writing a I'm writing a web backend. I'm gonna go with virtual threads. Period. That's once again I don't want to give this recommendation because I think it takes some time to maybe check out some details and. Uh, uh, see where that actually works, but my 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 guess is that this will just become the default, and there will be specific workloads where you decide on purpose not to do that. Mm -hmm. Just like you get, I don't know, G one GC by default, which is works better for web backends because it minimizes pause times, but has overall a higher resource consumption. Where it's okay, it's a good default because most Java code runs in backends, but for the few where it doesn't, not the few, but you know, for the ones where it doesn't, for all the other use cases where you have a desktop application or you have just a batch processing system or whatever, uh, or just a service um, uh, that you call like for long-running tasks, all of those things, you're like, you know what? Actually, I don't care about uh, latency that much. I do care about um, um, about just raw resource usage. So I want to use Parallel GC because it gives me, it can give me like three-second long pause times, but I don't care. All mm -hmm. I care about is they have a minimum amount of overhead in total. So then I switch the GC. And I think probably that could be the case with threads as well, that you have very specific cases where you know, okay, you know, in this case, like all the loot thing doesn't make any sense at all. I'll just go with operating system threads. But I would guess that uh, virtual threads will become a reasonable default. I don't think, I mean, like, 
that's the default, of course, that then the web servers would have to pick. It's not something that uh, the Java code, uh, like the JDK cannot make one of these threads the default. Like it depends on which API you use, which kind of threads you get, and that will not change. So the question is what APIs will people and, and frameworks and servers use by default? Mm-hmm. And my guess is many of them will probably switch to virtual threads over the next like years. We're talking about a long time here, right? Yeah, I, I, my guess is earlier because what what, what happens is um, in my project at least, um, and with my project and more boring enterprise projects is that the you know high performance projects are become less and less important because what you tend to do is to go to move away from you know dedicated hardware to virtualized environment, so you cannot rely on on the absolute power or performance anymore. So you have to work you know on Kubernetes or Docker or whatever and in multiple. On multiple virtual machines or AWS lambdas or serverless or Oracle functions or whatever, so um, and there's like short-lived processes. So um, even you know the garbage collection tricks became less and less important. So we usually ship with the default settings and rely on Java ergonomics, which works good enough now, but it didn't work you know even five years ago good enough. So um, I, I would say. Five years ago, I still, or maybe seven years ago, I still got a lot of requests and you know, all helping my clients with performance issues, and and now it's become less and less important because um, yeah, the 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 landscape changed, and uh, therefore, uh, and Loom, why I'm excited about is what I really don't like or don't like uh, what's um, you know I would say how to call it maybe artificial usage of reactive programming, right? So this is what uh, I I saw. In uh, in lots of projects, just used to know the, the the reactive programming, just because they could, there was no real reason, and this introduced some complexity. And the argumentation was always, one day we will we'll have to scale more, and with reactive programming we can achieve we, we can achieve that. And with Project Loom, I could actually ignore all the reactive programming APIs, and um, even JDK 1.9 reactive programming APIs. And just uh, focus on, or focus, just write, you know, old-fashioned Java code. And if there is more traffic, um, maybe I'm not running, you know, in the highest possible performance, but at least won't break. And this is what, uh, what, what I like. So we can still write really simple code, boring code, without thinking about high scalability too much. So this is my, 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 my huge, this is why I'm really so excited about Loom. Yeah. I think the situation you described where people use reactive that way, uh, that's like, uh, I mean, that in that situation, you have a lot of uh, forces on that system. So first of all, you're like, uh, like you're under the assumption that it, that's probably true, that if you do want to write like a highly scalable system, you, you could not do that with just regular boring Java code. Mm-hmm. You would mm-hmm. then in that situation have to be reactive. And then... But we're not there yet, right? So that project was not there yet. And most projects will never get there because exactly. most projects, turns out, don't need like millions of, uh, of connections a second or whatever. But then, of course, like, but if you see a reasonable future where that could happen, it would also suck if you then arrive there and you're like, okay, now we basically have to, you know, start writing stuff from scratch because like you cannot just dump like your old business log that uses like blocking calls everywhere. Uh, and throw it into like a reactive container and it just ha- magically works, right? I mean, actually, Loom, Loom mostly does that, which is the amazing part. Uh, but with reactive, you then have to rewrite a lot of stuff. So, of course, I understand also the other situation, the other position of being like, you know what, but we want to be there. We see a path to that future where we need that scalability. Uh, it would kind of suck to rewrite everything then. We can just pay that, you know, extra cost of writing somewhat unfamiliar code now. But then again, also some people I know, they just like writing those, those in those, uh, they like using those APIs. They like writing 
uh, or thinking rather in their reactive pattern. And uh, for them, it's not even a downside maybe, right? So I think like all of these forces probably work on these projects um, and it's not trivial, I think, to decide, but I would definitely agree with you to err on the part on the side of you know what just let's just write like this simple boring java code that doesn't maybe use like the fancy new um a library or framework but still uh and then still have uh the option or rather have have a situation where it will scale and the question how well it scales compared to reactive that's actually quite interesting uh and i'm sure we'll see like like what actually somebody has to do is to take like a dozen highly scalable systems and write them both ways and then see what performs better, right? That's like the only way to get a somewhat scientific answer to which works better when. This is not going to happen. This is just so much time that nobody is going to invest. So it will basically be more anecdotally, uh, anecdotes, whatever, yeah. like you know what I mean, right? So we'll, we'll, Anecdotal, yeah. It, yeah, uh, right, anecdotal. So it's like, because like you just can't do that. But like some preliminary tests that Elliot Ballas, for example, did, uh, he wrote like a great, like he wrote like a small server in reactive uh, and i think he also used just like non-blocking io and then also loom if i recall correctly he did some experiments and it really looks like in that in those specific experiments right so i'm just like and it's also an artificial experiment it's not like it's well all experiments are but it's not like a real code base uh it's it's just an experiment what you could see is that um loom performs as well as reactive but in that situation took a little bit more memory if i remember mm -hmm. correctly so it's not even necessarily the case that reactive gives you like loom only gives you like 90 percent um, that really depends, I think, on uh, on the details of the application. And I have no idea what those details are. And will take it could like it would take time to figure out what details make maybe Reactive be a couple percent better or make Loom be a couple percent better. But I'm questioning whether that will really will really ever figure it out in that detail. Because as I said, that would mean like to really be rigorous yeah, yeah, but about you know, it. You the, have to the, compare the, the same thing. No one cares about the five or ten percent even. Let's say. Reactive programming. I wouldn't say no one. But yeah, no, no, of very of few, course. Very few. No, yeah. but I would say if I'm in charge in a project and someone will come to me and say, look, we have to use you know, proprietary APIs in order to be 10% more efficient, um, then the question is really, I mean, they may be, you know, if you're building a gaming server or, or even not a gaming server, let's say you're building an ingress controller for, for a cloud. This makes mm -hmm. sense because you know ten percent whatever you're doing, it is worth of doing this. Or you have you know uh, 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 um, millions per second messaging app. But I'm talking about enterprise projects. Then using you know an and strange API and uh, uh, and uh, and uh, believing that all developers will learn it and love it and maintain it over the years is just never pays off. So I would say I will always start with the simplest possible, more more natural thing in Java. So write simple code and hope that the platform. Uh, will just resolve the issue, and and we had similar conversations back then. You know, of people, developers wanted to to write um, to write uh, pools to improve performance, and you know, cache strings, and and write you know strange code. And what they introduced often was you know memory leaks, and uh, and just <laughs> and just simple code was was better than you know sophisticated code. And my feeling, a code is my feeling is this happens the same in the project loom. So uh, it will be good enough for ninety percent of all cases, and you will always find cases where you know the the general approach is not good enough. But this is this is always like it is, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And, and there, as I said, like I just want to repeat that point. I'm not even sure whether it will turn out that uh, that in the extreme case you have to go reactive. I'm not even sure that's that's uh, yeah. settled. But yes, I, otherwise I agree with you. I mean, I think what it can come down, what it comes down to is. Um, 
the cost that an uh, that uh, an app incurs for operations and for development. And mm -hmm. we think of DevOps at the same as a, like one one unit, and that makes sense from any perspective. But if you just look at the cost, like how often, how much do you pay developers and how much do you pay cloud provider, like to make it to oversimplify it. I think that's that's an important um, that's an important um, distinction in where does it make sense to save money. So, for example, like I'm, I was always impressed that that <clears throat> sorry, organizations like uh, companies like Twitter, for example, I'm not sure about Netflix, but like these large companies, right? That they have JVM engineers, they have people on staff that dig around the JVM, try to understanding better, making improvements, uh, applying patches, hunting down you know performance problems. And that's that's ridiculous, right? Because those people are very, very far removed from benefiting the company directly, right? They're basically they're people you hire, which are usually highly qualified and thus I assume highly paid, to working on the platform that you're using to deliver 280 characters. But the point is, you can afford to have a bunch of those dig into the JVM because if all they do is give you like a one percent performance improvement year over year, that will still pay off at that scale. And that's something that very few companies, a situation that very few companies are in, that they're running at a scale where uh, the cost of operation dwarfs the costs of development by so yeah. much that it makes yeah. sense to have like, okay, let's invest in, let's say, 10 or 20% more into development to save like a percent or two on uh, at uh, in, in operation costs. And most, like specifically um, the enterprise uh applications you describe i would guess are probably not in that situation no and if the cost of development dominates then yeah sure write the code that everybody understands and can debug and can fix a mistake and that you don't need like a three-year uh mid-level to senior education program for new people coming on board but you yeah. can just hire you know like a regular run-of-the-mill java developer with a couple years experience put them to your code base and you know and they roughly know what's where and how things work the problem is that the Twitter engineers join, you know, the or go to Java 0.9 conference, for instance, right, and talk about <laughs> their their inventions, and then you know the board enterprise developers listen to them and say, "Look, we we have the same problems as Twitter has, and they are introducing the reactive programming just, you know, because they are bored with the simple code." I see it over and over again, you know. Um, no, no kidding, we had a discussion already. Uh, one of the most frequent questions before the project even starts is, what's in my opinion about Kotlin or Scala? Less so now, but Kotlin. And I say, okay, but we don't even know, know what we are going to build. Maybe just, you know, playing Java 17 is, is good enough. And uh, I'm not sure whether Kotlin will help us that much. Yeah, but it's nicer. And then, you know, structured concurrency and whatever. I was like, but... No, we are boring enterprise projects. Maybe we get, if we are lucky, two transactions per second, right? And and then hope <laughs> hope that there will be enough load, you know, to 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 see, you know, the multi-threading even. And and you are talking about <laughs> <laughs> about you know <laughs> um, reactive programming. But um, what Luma also introduced is structured concurrency. So this is not just about threads. There will be a class called uh, structured. Scope, I think, structured, structured task, uh, um, which help us, you know, to deal with the concurrency, right? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So uh, maybe let, let's uh, take a step back for a second. So uh, we're talking about, you know, what new, what changes are in Java 19. Yeah. And uh, we've already just talked about uh, the virtual threads with this, which is one JEP. Uh, let me look up the number. It's J uh, JDK enhancement proposal. That's what JEP stands for. 425. That's on virtual threads, mm -hmm. and that gives you. You know what we just we didn't technically explain how it works, but like the the summary is have as many threads as you want, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions. Just go ham 
uh, go take virtual threads and go and you know get a, get as many as you want. Um, uh, do, do you know the performance implication? Let's say between one million and ten million. Is there any difference? Yeah, well, there's no general thing. It depends on what they do. Like if you write yeah, like sure. the stupidest code where you just create a million threads that sleep a second. Yeah. Uh, like on on a consumer laptop, uh, I can create a million virtual threads that each sleep a second. Uh, and that program runs in one second plus like super low overhead. So basically what it does, it creates like a million, like it creates a virtual thread that uses the operating system thread. Then that goes to sleep. So immediately the operating system thread can do something else. Yeah. And then I create the next one, the next one. So uh, you can create a million of those mm-hmm. in almost no time. Like, like yeah. I don't know. But ninety percent, at least, of the assist of the of the uh, of the runtime of that system is just to wait. But of course, that's a stupid example, right? Because you're not actually doing anything. So um, yeah, so virtual threads have like have very low overhead, but whether they make sense depends. Yeah. On how much waiting there actually is. But the RAM system. overhead is there a RAM overhead? It has to oh, be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, that depends on the depth of the stack. Yeah. So um, you have a call stack that has to go somewhere. Usually the call stack is, you know, it's you have a bunch of threads, let's say, you know, 32, for example. You have 32 call stacks and they're like all the time, they're like shuffled around and that's fine. That's good. Um, but if you have millions of them, you constantly have to, you know, park uh, the call stack somewhere. And then that depends on what uh, your call stack is. So in my situation, my specific example, what I did is I said, basically create a new thread and then sleep for a second. That is like a super small call stack, right? Mm-hmm. So having a millions of those is basically free. It's like a million, I don't know what a call stack is. It's like a linked list, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. There were no variables on there. So it's like super small. It's like a million small yeah. lists to have. You can yeah, have a million instances, million Java objects, right? So this is what, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but in each of those is like a small linked list, probably something. I'm not sure what it, how exactly it's implemented, but that's technically what a call stack is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, it's a stack, but you know, that's anyway. Um, so, but the point is, if you have like deep call stacks, so for example, if you want to, if you batter your operating, uh, so your web framework with a million requests per second, and they go through like the whole spring layer of like a gazillion, uh, like verification and, you know, all kinds of checks. And then, and then they end up like, I don't know, 50 calls deep in your, before they touch your, oper- sorry, they touch your code. And then you do a couple more things and then they go to sleep. Now you have like pretty large stacks. And mm-hmm. then surely you will start to notice that in memory. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, um, okay. So this was just, you know, the virtual threads. And there we have yeah. a 428 JEP. Exactly. And this is the structured concurrency. This is uh, more exciting because we get new classes. <laughs> is that is that the hierarchy? More classes, more better? Um... <laughs> <laughs> no, more exciting. It's not better. It's just something new. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. Exciting yeah, actually... is... Out, out of question, I would say whether it is good is the different one, but we get a new class is always exciting in Java, right? Yeah, no, that's true. That's actually the thing. Like what I enjoy most is probably like language changes. The next one, I'm also an exciting hierarchy, definitely. The next one is like new classes, as you say. Mm-hmm. And like virtual threads are actually very, like the, the category where virtual threads belong in, which is something changed within the JVM is actually, within the JDK, is actually pretty low, low on my list of exciting things. <laughs> It's like, okay, that happens like all the time. All the time something in the JDK changes and then something, you know, changes behavior a bit. But yeah, but Loom changes behavior so much that virtual threads are still very exciting. But you're right. So virtual threads, uh, sorry, structured concurrency, they add some. And the idea here is, um, okay, so let me first explain the idea of structured concurrency. And then we go back why this happens in the context of Loom. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind structured programming was 
back in the days. I don't know when. I want to guess 60s or something, but I'm not sure. Um, definitely before my time. Uh, was that having just like an basically infinitely long list of commands that's supposed to be executed and then jump across this list or this sea of commands with go-tos is probably not a great idea to write code that's supposed to be maintainable. Because mm-hmm. it turns out, well, that's like the, probably the most efficient and also like the most straightforward way you can write something, this becomes like unintelligible very, very quickly. And as program size grew, uh, this meant that you always have to have the entire program in your head. You have to like simulate the entire thing to understand where the control flow goes. Uh, I mean, simulate in your head, right? To understand where the control flow goes because there were like no boundaries at all. And structured programming was taking away some freedom. It was like, you know what? Maybe go we don't to. need to go to... Yeah, exactly. Don't go to everywhere all the time. Maybe just have like ifs and loops. And then actually like back then, there was like a big pushback. And they'll be like, no, you cannot do everything with this. And then there's a famous proof in computer science, which is so famous, I forgot the name, which actually proved that, no, no, you, you only need... Like if you have something like if and loop, and I'm not sure whether you even need more. If you have like a couple of these control structures you can actually replace, like you can. You have the same expressive power as with GoTo because initially people were like, no, but how can you do this without GoTo? Well, then, so you, then you figure to, you out mean, you mean a way. Turing complete, right? So that you can express whatever is possible. Is it this? But by the way, GoTo, yeah, so, uh, go uh, this was my first smart pens, you know, uh, uh, tasks where I saw GoTo, it's like, no, you shouldn't use GoTo. Use GoSup, you know? I said, oh, GoSup because GoTo... Uh, go to you have to remember where it came from and goes up you jump somewhere and and then if you are uh, d- done then it jump back this was goes up you know this Ooh, was a, oh, so yeah. i don't i didn't know that yeah yeah so what's was, the command what's the command to jump back like is there so goes up is go somewhere and then when that block is this over was basic, you, you have also, this was this was basic you know uh, like yeah. uh, 10 years ago um no no kidding but uh go go to and then you have to go to back and go up okay. you just went somewhere and then came back so it was like yeah. a small small function already yeah yeah kind of right so uh circuit programming was uh about um uh introducing those you know now i'm wondering like maybe i maybe i switched this up was structure programming about the if and the loops anyway so what it also was yeah structured programming you're actually... right this was c actually structured programming they were like you know in german i forgot the the english term but in german was struct structogram it's like you know uh, structogram yeah. was like the strange thing if was like a triangle with if else. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I remember those as well. Like it's like it's a way basically of like visualizing a program. And the loop was, was like an inverted L or something, right? Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah, uh, you could um, do it maybe in a hello world, and then uh, I always mess up because there's not enough room, you know, on the paper to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so the other part, like, uh, so the, uh, and an important part of, of structured programming was. Um, to have procedures or functions or methods, or whatever we call them, uh, so blocks of code that have a single entry point and then either a single exit point or at least just clearly defined exit points. Mm-hmm. So the idea was let's create uh, a block or a scope where we know that all that happens happens within that scope only, right? So we know, like, whatever this method does or this procedure does, it does it in here and it doesn't just randomly like get go to into. And it just doesn't randomly let's go to out where it never comes back. Um, so structured programming is, again, it's a limitation. And it's saying, look, we do, let's not do everything we can. Let's just stick to a, a limited amount of, of, um, of uh, what do you want to call that, 
uh, let's just limit our freedom to just to uh, fewer things or to be allowed fewer things, but then that gives us a structure that makes it easier to understand programs. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, and that is basically the idea of structure concurrency, but for concurrency. So uh, concurrency is similar to this go-to world at the moment because you start threads wherever you want. Mm -hmm. You have no idea where they complete. Like it's all just like all over the place. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, and based, so the similarity to GoTo's is that if you want to understand how concurrency works in the system, you again have to mentally simulate a large part of the system to understand where like something gets created in which thread and or which thread pool and then how long that goes and where you get the results back and all of that. And so structure concurrency, and this is not something that the Project Loom folks came up with. Um, I will, the next time you say something, I will quickly look up uh, the name of the people who um, popularized this because it is in the JEP somewhere. Um so this was not based on the ideas of the team. This is an idea that has been around longer, but uh, Jeb428 wants to bring that into Java. So the idea is you're not just creating... I mean, you can still do that, right? It's not like nothing is taken away from you. You can still use all the thread pools and you can still use like thread run and whatever, or thread start, I think it is. Uh, so you can still all do all of that if you want to. But additionally, you get a new API that forces a more structured approach. And the idea here is that you create what's called a structured task scope. Mm -hmm. And you do that in a try with resources block. Mm -hmm. So you create this new scope for tasks in a try with resources block. So try, and then you open parentheses and you say scope is new structure task scope. Mm -hmm. And then within the try block, you will say, okay, do this task, do that task, do that task, whatever. Like uh, ask that weather service, ask the fallback weather service. And then also, I don't know, like query something in the database that we need to charge the user, whatever. Like do these three things. They happen then uh, concurrently. Um, and once you're done, you will just, uh, so once you fire these three off, uh, maybe you do some other computation, whatever, maybe you keep yourself busy, but at some point you want to wait for them. And that happens in the same block. Like mm -hmm. that's the same block of code. So if you want to do longer things, you would put them into your own method, call that method because you want to keep that block of code, you know, short-ish, like you always mm -hmm. want to keep blocks of code. And so when the try block ends, the scope gets shut down. And at that point you have to be done. So the idea is, you create all your tasks in one scope at once. And when the scope is done, you're done with those. So when you start a new thread, it will end in the same scope. That's what structured concurrency is about. And that has a bunch of prerequisites and, uh, and uh, consequences. One of the prerequisites is if you don't want to somehow like manage global state state or want to always hand around the same task code or whatever, like it's really, really helpful if you can just create new threads everywhere. Like in this situation, I just said, like, I want to have new three tasks. It would be by far e the easiest approach to just create three new threads for these three new tasks and wait for them to be finished and not do something like thread pooling or whatever, because then you have to share the same thread pool, blah, blah, blah. Um, no, you just want to everywhere in your code where you feel like I have to do concurrent tasks, you just want to start new threads to run those concurrent tasks. Now, that does not work well with operating system threads. You cannot just have, like in a modern Java system, every piece of code just be like, yeah, sure, I'll spin up a new operating system thread. That will be fine. Uh, no, because then you're running out of OS threads. You want to manage those, hence the pooling, blah, blah, blah. With virtual threads, you don't have that situation. So that's very great. That's great. You're in a very uh, good uh, situation with virtual threads where you can just create new ones wherever you want. So that's a prerequisite. Uh, actually, that's why I think you belong together. If, if you think mm -hmm. about this, the, virtual, uh, the, the Project Loom is actually a huge thread pool, right? 
This yeah, is a global singleton thread pool, so you can pick and, and you know threads whatever you like because they are maintained by the JVM, so it maintains all the virtual threads and they are somehow mapped to the real threads. But actually, I would consider from the conceptual perspective the Project Loom as a huge thread pool. Yeah. So and, okay. So let, let's let's take that sidetrack because that's very interesting and, and it also works uh, in a way very much like uh, like reactive. So if I tell you I have a system where when you make a certain call. Uh, what happens under the hood is that that call does get executed, but then because it requires some waiting, uh, we basically register a callback, and then we go do something else. Mm -hmm. And when the callback completes, we're going to continue with the computation. What did I just describe? Because that's that's also how reactive system works, right? Yeah. They like 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 this this uh, async I/O for for example, where you yeah. uh, where you just only use the thread to do something when you're busy, and when you're waiting you register callback, so you don't actually have to actively wait. And that's also what Loom implements under the hood, right? So, that's so exactly the cool story this. is that the reactive system is the exact, exact opposite of Loom because they are usually just using one thread, right? So the entire event system is, is in one thread, and then sometimes they use a different threads for the, for the actual work, but the event loop, like you Node.js or whatever, it is always one thread, right? And in Project Loom, we have infinite amount of threads, which is interesting because uh, why it is so interesting, what my observation in general is, if there is a best practice or a pattern, if you take the exact opposite, you get another best practice, right? And it seems to be like <laughs> like the reactive programming with one thread and programming model, and Project Loom without a programming model, or almost, uh, forget uh, structured concurrency for a second, and an infinite amount of threads, it is, they are both best practices or both patterns, but they, they are exact opposite. A Project Loom, no API, infinite amount of threads, uh, reactive programming, strict API, one thread. Yeah, so I would have to think about that a little more. And I feel like you're right, but that also only discusses the part that's exposed to the user, right? So yeah, sure. When, yeah, when yeah. Just, just, that user, Loom just works user. like yeah. yeah. When you just said that Loom works like a giant thread pool under the hood, um, then that's that's true. And I also think that the way that Loom does those uh, the virtual threads are using those async APIs where they're available. Uh, under the hood also is has similarities to how uh, that works generally in asynchronous programming. Yeah, sure. Yes. Um, so what it does is it takes those uh, those um, working concepts and abstracts them, so you don't have to write more complicated code than you want to to benefit from them. You can just like yeah. write like the regular blocking code. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's definitely um, that's the the global thread pool and uh, the global async thread pool that, that we have there. Okay. So let's close that sidetrack. Let's go back to structural concurrency. So you want to be able to create all of these threads, and we just covered that you can do that. Um, and another so interruption. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, the structured... Uh, yeah, it is our podcast. This is usual. But the structured, sure, yeah, yeah. structured task scope, I think is the name. Is this yeah. like just pure JVM structure? Or is this somehow native? You know it? You know what I mean? Is it just, uh, you know, like invention like, uh, let's say, a Java record where you can just group things? Or is it like bound to the operating system somehow? Uh, so how low level is it, the structure? Yeah. Because I look at the source code, and for me, um, what, what I'm thinking about, is it just, you know, a convenience grouping of threads? Or is this something more behind where, you know, uh, uh, it is bound to the low-level mechanics of, of JVM? Yeah, so the question, you can you can rephrase that question as, could I have written that code? Yeah, exactly. Or does it have to be in the JVM? Very good. You, you are evangelist, I'm just developer. Now you see, you know. This is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's, I, I come to that, I rephrase it like that, because it's actually a question that the JDK, that's one interesting 
uh, one important question that the JDK maintainers ask when it's about, can this be in the JDK? So often people come like, hey, I have this great usability method. Could this be in the JDK? Mm -hmm. And then like one important test, it's not the only one, but one important test is, does it have to be? Like, is, is there benefit when it's in the JDK? Or could it just as well be outside the JDK? Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that's like an interesting thing because that's what Java, like for example, Java on purpose doesn't take on like any machine learning specific stuff in API because if it's like, we don't have to, like this is great to live outside in libraries and other projects that can, you know, like experiment and, uh, and evolve uh, more and faster than we can. There's no point in us dragging this into the JDK. Uh, so what about the structured task scope? That's actually, that actually deals with one of the big advantages of a structured concurrency as it as it appears in Java now. So when you do what I just described, you open a new task scope and then you create new, three new tasks that you want to run. Now let's say something goes wrong, you take a heap dump uh, or you just look into the debugger. And what you usually see with thread pooling or with reactive is you just see like three tasks together mm -hmm. with all the other places where you run tasks. So you just see like a like hundred tasks that are currently being run and it's super tough uh, specifically without extra tooling to figure out like where do these come from like this specific task mm. what was the web request that spawned this like you know what 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 called talk mm -hmm. uh, what triggered this specific uh, let's say database request the correlation ID right run. so usually we talk about correlation ID how you know the user exactly. request is bound to the threads and, and yeah you process. have to put in exactly yeah. you have to put in like more information to track that and it's like it's not standardized by tools so it's not like an easy click in your IDE so the thing is this what the structured task scope will do is something that works only if you have so many threads and that is it will a thread will basically get the id of its parent thread so when you create a structured task scope you're creating a hierarchical situation where you're saying look i'm running this code in one thread and what i'm doing now is i'm creating i'm creating three new tasks these are subtasks there's a hierarchical relationship mm -hmm. here i'm a task i'm running something big i create these three new small tasks and where they are done, I can continue. So you can think of this as a tree where you have like a request comes in and it can spawn one or more subtasks and they can create more subtasks. You get like a small tree of tasks that is being computed to finish that overall request. And what uh, the structure concurrency APIs, this is the first one that we have and it's maybe we'll see more in the future. What they do is they put that relationship into the virtual threads. So a virtual thread knows which parent virtual thread it belongs mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. And that's something that you cannot do from outside the JDK. That's why this must be part of the JDK API. And that is great because that what that means is, you let's say you put a breakpoint at some place in your code and you're running one of these subtasks that in a regular world would just be like a small thing that would be running in a, in a thread pool. And you mm -hmm. know that problem, right? You go up with calls taking like, ah, oh, crap. I'm sitting in like, you know, whatever uh, uh, run, uh, um, whatever uh, thread pool I have in its launch or start or whatever method that triggered this specific thread execution. Now, how do I find the parent? And that would not be the case. Like with uh, structured concurrency and virtual threads, your IDE has all the information it needs to give you a little button where you say, let's just jump to the parent. So you have, you're, you're sitting in your, in your database uh, task with a breakpoint, wondering why you got here. You open the debugger, it will show you the call stack, and then somewhere in your IDE, it has all the information it needs uh, to connect that to the parent thread. So you could just click a button 
go to the parent thread and then you're sitting, oh, where's the parent thread sitting? Oh, okay, I know where it's sitting. It just fired off the database request and maybe through other requests. So it's sitting at this close call on this task scope waiting for these to complete. But now you're in your parent thread so you are in your parents call stack so you can see you know what was its uh, what is the information there what is uh, the 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 um the variables that are on that stack and other stack frames and you can go the, all the way up to the request this way and you can go back down as well so you have like this uh this new relationship here and this will be you know somewhat challenging for IDE developers to deal with because at the moment you have like a drop down box to select your current thread in most IDEs that works great for a couple dozen <laughs> That doesn't work great for a couple hundred thousand. So they have to find a new way to let you pick what thread you want to look at. First of all, a drop-down list that populates with all the threads that it can find will give you like a super small scroll bar and like a basically by human standards infinite amount of threads to scroll through. So that's not helpful. And then also like it doesn't show relationships. So there's like room there for to cool to do uh, cool new things to help developers better understand the application. For example, what I like is like the IntelliJ stream debugger that they have, where you can run a stream pipeline, it observes it, and then it basically gives you like, it's not a marble diagram exactly, but it gives you like more information about which elements got filtered and you know, what, what happened with that map and all of that. So let's rephrase that. So what it means to me is, so uh, my code is always running in a thread. So if I start with a st uh, structured uh, scoped task, this is the right name, as I forgot. Structured um, task scope. A structured Let's just call task scope. Yeah. <laughs> a, a structured task scope. Yeah. Um, then, of course, it is going to be executed in the scope of the first thread. If I start another uh, task inside this uh, scope task, um, then what happens on the bytecode level is similar to what happened you know, uh, a few years ago. We had a thread groups in Lava, uh, Java. So in Lava, Lava, we could Java. So what, what, what it meant, uh, I, could, um, I, I could have uh, multiple threads in one group. And, and this, um, what it, this does is it say, okay, everything which is started inside the task scope, um, the, 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 the uh, thread prior to this become the parent. So on the yep. bytecode level, it's just the association between the sub-threads and the parent thread. This is what happens on the bytecode level. Exactly, right? Uh, yeah, so it's, it's basically, it's just a thread ID that gets written to a field yeah. somewhere. Yeah. That then is stored exactly, yeah. So like the, the idea is that so the, the the implementation. Well, okay. So the abstract version of the implementation yeah, sure. is pretty simple. Yeah, it's, it's just, just like a thread ID into a field somewhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that only works because you know that these tasks will only or these new virtual threads are bound. Their lifetime is bound uh, in a larger scope. So you, this would not work if one thread, let's say thread A, triggers thread B and then keeps going, and then thread A ends, and B is still running around somewhere. Then it yeah. wouldn't make sense for B to claim A as my parent. It only makes sense if A starts B, C, and D, and we know that A waits for B, C, and D to, to complete before it continues. And that's exactly what structured concurrency wants you to do with this try block, right? Yeah. You start new tasks in a scope, and you wait for them to complete in a scope. Mm -hmm. And one advantage you get for that is this uh, hierarchical uh, relationship that you are creating gets explicitly written out into the fields, into the bikeracy set, and then they can be picked up uh, by the tooling. So that's yeah. one very important consequence of this. And this will like, I, like I, once we do all this, like I, I think it will be unthinkable for how it was before. Like imagine now debugging without being able to just randomly click into your call stack to drop frames, to start over. Like this is really crucial for when you're debugging code. 
Yeah. And uh, another uh, analogy, uh, I, I guess in your in your leisure, you are reading, you know, EJB books like crazy, Enterprise Java Beans. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, all day long. <laughs> and uh, the, they had transactions. And one of the, uh, so I, I have a, uh, like a streaming show called AHEX TV. And there's one very common question, as it was at least, uh, was like um, nested transactions. So there was always the question, though, we have one transaction and in one method. And in mm -hmm. the sub-methods, there are uh, transactions which are just independently started. So imagine... So, so, so help the help the EGB noob. Are you talking about database transactions or what kinds uh, of transactions? The, the, the cool story is EGB was just a virtual transaction. And in one point of time, it was mapped to database or JMS or whatever. But uh, at the conceptual level, the transactions were actually bound to threads, which is very similar. This is where I'm going to. Okay. And, and, and the interesting part is if you imagine a web app, so... Um, if you called, you know, um, and this is now exactly tool with Helidon or Quarkus, we can use transactional uh, annotation, which is behaves identical to EJB. But um, so if you have an entry point to an application, a boundary, and uh, this is like JAXRS, so just REST endpoint, and, and then you put uh, requires new transaction uh, on it. So what it means is uh, the method is going to, the transaction is going to be uh, to start uh, at the method uh, uh, begin and commit or rollbacks at the method end. So and now the mm -hmm. question was, if we start inside the method new transactions, so we go to a database or to GMS, new transactions going to be started. Is it possible? And uh, and the expectations of developers is that if the outer transaction rollbacks, the inner transactions also have to roll back, which is mm -hmm. impossible because uh, they are independent. So what it means is exactly the same problem you, you said right now with threads, uh, we had uh -huh. the problem with transactions is identical. So with structured concurrency, I could I could get you know structured transactions, which is uh, uh, let's say uh, 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 so. Then uh, I could start you know a sub transaction. The parent would be the super transaction, and then everything would be rolled back or committed, which was not possible before. And okay, so if I understand you correctly, the, in general, there was no guarantee that the uh, that the the outer transaction, the first transaction, would still be waiting for the inner transaction. Yeah, so it never general, waited. It, it never waited. It was asynchronous. It could never wait because it would be ridiculous. Okay. Uh, yeah, and it, that's okay. That makes sense. Why you cannot roll back exactly? Like because the outer transaction might already be done. It might yeah, yeah. I forgot to mention if 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 yeah. it uh, this is uh, of course uh, the question was always in an asynchronous transaction. So the, the first one okay. was synchronous and it was asynchronous. And my my answer was always uh, I forgot to mention this of course. Um, so in the GMS case, um, if uh, you know if the if the inner transaction. Uh, runs longer than the outer, which can happen. Yeah. In, that then is in no way that the outer can know. You know, uh, oh, five yeah. minutes. Uh, yeah, this is mission impossible. And then say, like, okay, you are right, actually. But uh, with the uh, with a structured concurrency, uh, structured transactions, this is what you're saying. It 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 solves actually the problem because it will know. Okay, the under uh, transactions know the parent transaction. And there's the relation, but uh, in the in the in the uh, EJB transaction there was no relations. Which um, I just if you if you explain that I immediately thought you know about the not yeah. problem this is a phenomenon with transactions and uh, funny enough uh, it is actually stated that in this spec called JTA Java Transaction API the uh, transactions are actually bound to threads so what okay. could happen is with Loom that it can have some impact on enterprise actually so um, maybe we get no structured transactions because if transactions are threads. And uh, and uh, they can communicate easier with each other. So who knows, right? So it could be interesting stuff. Stuff can happen, actually. Yeah, but like, but then the um, I'm not the 
Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering about when you, because you described that these transactions are asynchronous, if that's on purpose, like if you're... Yeah, if this, was you, on, this was on purpose, but if it's not on purpose, yeah. so at least I yeah, could exactly. start one, one transaction and everything is synchronous, then I could say, okay, the transaction is propagated to all threads. At least this is would be solved with a structured task scope because right now, if I have transaction and I'm using a thread pools and also there are no uh, uh, synchronous, the transaction yeah. context can get lost. But uh, yeah. with, with, uh, with Loom... Uh, and structured concurrency, I could keep the context going. So regardless how many threads I'm, uh, am I starting, if I'm waiting for all these threads to complete, uh, I can still have one common transaction to complete or not to complete, which is exciting. Yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, I mean, it, it really depends on, uh, because as I said, like with structured task scope, you create this hierarchy of uh, one task belongs to the other task. Mm -hmm. I mean, that does not cover all tasks though, right? Sometimes you just have something like, okay, so we're completing this business uh, let's say we're completing this this um, this business operation. Uh, what we now need to do is I don't know. Uh, we need to s trigger I don't know something else. Like a, name, like I mean, a very common that. example is you're writing. Uh, you do something, and what, regardless whether it was successful or not, you have to write out it to a database in a new transaction, for instance, right? So this is a typical uh, or not typical. This is one of the cases in the enterprise where you do something, and regardless whether it's successful or not, you have to write to a database. Now we have the problem because if you do everything in one transaction, right, and if the first part becomes unsuccessful, the entire transaction gets rolled back, and nothing is written to the to the rollback uh, to the audit log. And uh, what you would actually would like to see is on error, you are writing the error to the log. So you will need yeah. back then, you know, two transactions, which are independent. And now we can maybe have something more simple. I have to think about, but... Um, yeah, but, it's, but if it's something you need to do, if it's something you need to do, then I, I think it still fits, in, fits into this hierarchical model. What I'm trying to come up with is an example where you don't care. Like when you say, look, my task is done. I really want to fire something off that happens in the background, that, but that's, that's unrelated really to me. So not everything fits, of course, into this hierarchical model. There will still be a, like background tasks that you have to fire off uh, that you do not want to wait for. Of course, that works. You can still use a virtual thread for that. You just wouldn't use a structured task scope. So it's not like virtual threads focus, force you to use structured concurrency. No. Uh, it will just, I think it will be the main approach. And as you describe, I think that can work well beyond uh, just uh, this specific API. This The benefit uh, can probably also be reaped by uh, other uh, by you know other frameworks or other uh, yeah. approaches and, and the correlation ID is the next one because it's always a correlation IDs and transactions are somehow uh, related because with correlation ID you have the same problem uh, you know the correlation ID is just like you know um, anonymous user representation and you would like to write logs or have you know audit information with correlation IDs and if mm -hmm. the if the threads IDs are propagated from the parent to the to the children then uh, we, we have the same correlation ID maybe everywhere. And this solves a lot of problems because right now we know we have to hand off the context between thread pools and with Loom, it could become easier. Just, just interesting thinking yeah. because as you started yeah. explaining, you know, the, 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 the structured concurrency, I immediately got, you know, uh, my uh, transactions point of view, which is one of the most uh, common questions. So um, yeah. another thing which really excites me, or, or no, another question, of course, what I used in the past a lot is completable future. So maybe there was some discussion why the developers just didn't use completable future. W wasn't it possible to implement this with completable future? You know this? Because yeah, but the completable future, is, that's that's somewhat antithetical to what Loom wants you to do because completable future is an asynchronous API, right? What you're doing is you're yeah, saying right. do this task, then do that task, then do that task, then do that task. But you can also wait, uh, right? So you can, you, can, you can write synchronous code with completable future. Yeah, that's... But 
but that's why you get so if you give something to a task scope what you get back is a future yeah. It's not a completable okay. future because you don't want to append other yeah, operations you're right. to it. And this would be wrong because then it would imply. Yeah, you you would use an old concept for something new, and everyone would be confused. So this was not the best. Yeah, idea. I, yeah, I wouldn't use the word new, but yeah, you use it two different ways. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. New wants this to is, write synchronous is, code, yeah, yeah. and computer is, future wants you to write asynchronous code, and I wouldn't mix them. Yeah. Um, but there's one more one more thing that I think uh, is is important here, and that is. Not only do you have these tasks fired off at the same time. So first of all, structured concurrency gives you a strong incentive uh, to basically do the multitasking or concurrency part where you just say, okay, so I want to fire off a few tasks and collect them again in one specific place, namely in that one method where you start the task scope and close it again. So one benefit you get is that it's like this, this whole where do things happen is limited to just a few methods where they have this task scope. So basically, you can just search for structured task scope and you will immediately find all the places uh, where you even do any kind of concurrency. So that gives you like a more structure in your code, easier to understand, easier to, to, to figure out. The other one that I mentioned is it, it creates this hierarchy also on the, J, in the, on the running JDK level where threads know, know their parents and that. The third thing you get is uh, because of this clear relationship between a parent task and the subtasks, and we know that these subtasks are somewhat related, we can decide how to handle errors for them. So you can, like, if you create a structured task scope, what you can do is you, uh, what you will often do, you will, for example, create a specific one that is called maybe shutdown on success or shutdown on failure, where you say, look, I'm running these three subtasks, I only need the first one to complete. So do shutdown on success, and then the scope, as soon as the first of these returns, We'll just shut the other two down. Uh, it depends on how they're implemented, how fast that works. But you could think of then maybe, you know, canceling a database transaction or canceling a web call because you're just asking three weather services for their forecast. You just want to pick the fastest one. It don't, you don't care which one. You just want to have the fastest one. And so the other two can immediately cancel their requests. And uh, that way you can continue with the computation as early as possible. Or you do shutdown on failure. We say, no, no, no. All three of these need to complete. Like if not, not all three of these complete, I can't go on. So you, do a, you create a scope that's called like so the class is specifically called shutdown on success and shutdown on failure that's uh that's a sub it's inner class of the structured task scope um so you would say try scope equals new structure task scope dot shutdown on success or shutdown on failure and then that scope would behave as i described so what you would do is you would say okay i want to shut down on the failure create uh, the scope for that that's configured to do that you you run your three subtasks and then what you do is you wait, and then after the wait, you need to check whether any errors, and then you can handle those errors. So that also means that you can have, not only do you create a parent-child relationship, you also create a sibling relationship where you can say, look, these three belong together. Uh, I want to treat them on a certain way as, as a group, where when they all succeed, where I need, for example, I need them all to succeed. So that also means that error handling and retries and all of that um, should become simpler and collected into the same method that started the scope. So you will probably, I would that's that at least what, how I want to write that code, is uh, you will have a method that mainly deals with this concurrency. It spins up the new scope, the one that you need, starts all of these tasks, but each task should just be a method. Mm -hmm. Like the thing like mm -hmm. call the weather service, that's its own method somewhere that only deals with the weather service. It doesn't mm -hmm. know anything about stupid virtual threads or structured concurrency. It yeah. just does the thing. And then the method that spins them off doesn't care about the business logic. It really just says, okay, so I want to start a scope. I want to call these three methods. I want to wait for the error or, or sorry, I want to wait for them to complete. I want to check for the error. I want to compose the result. That one is heavily focused on this concurrency part 
and how to do errors and how to create results and all of that. And the other methods will only do the business logic. logic. Mm -hmm. So you can uh, you, you can mix that, but I would recommend not to. And I think that gives you like clean code on both sides of this. The cool story is completely compatible with a structure using in my project called boundary control entity. And the boundary would be, you know, the structured task and the control is just methods with business logic and they were like the weather service. And this would just fit beautifully to, to, to this. Mm -hmm. The last thing, because of course we have no enough, enough time to entire Java 19, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but this is usual. But what's uh, the last thing which I really like is there will be new executor executors builder methods to return a virtual threads, right? So we get this yep. and thread builder. So there will be um, new APIs, of course, to get virtual threads back, right? Yeah. So uh, in this, I did a project loom uh, video on the inside, uh, uh, the inside Java newscast on the Java YouTube channel mm -hmm. recently, where I basically created, I don't want to call it a hierarchy, but like hierarchy makes it sound too strict. But the, how likely is it that you're going to interact uh, with this or that API? So what you can create, you can just say new thread dot of virtual and mm -hmm. create like a new virtual thread like by hand. You have a thread builder API uh, that you can use. Those are very low level. I don't think it's very likely uh, that you're going to do that a whole lot. Then you have, as you said, there's a new executor service, which is called, uh, so it's executors dot new virtual thread per task executor. Mm -hmm. So that looks somewhat similar to the scope because it creates a new virtual thread for each uh, submit or for each thing that you want to do. The difference is that the virtual uh, the virtual thread per task executor doesn't really care about structure. Not not really. It doesn't care about structure concurrency. All it does it behaves like a regular thread pool. With the difference, it will not pull threads because pooling only makes sense for expensive resources. Virtual threads aren't. So it will just fire off a new virtual thread for every task you give it to. But uh, otherwise, it behaves like an executor service, meaning mm -hmm. uh, it, it doesn't do any of parent-child relationships, error checking, all of that is up to you. You can use it to fire off background tasks so you can be done, right? So you can just say, create the new executor service, which creates a virtual thread per task. Here are 10 tasks. I don't even want to wait. I'll just be done. Um, and that's those are things that you will, you don't want to do with, virtual, uh, with structure concurrency. So this is an, this is another way. This is one step up from the threat and threat builder APIs, uh, and that surely is something that I want to say. Like if you want to deal with bare virtual threads for whatever reason, for example, write a stupid demo that waits on a million threads at the same time, that would be the API to use. Okay. And then the next level up is a structure concurrency APIs, which I really hope will be the source of like I don't know. I'm making up numbers now. 90, 95, whatever percent of virtual threads that we ever create hopefully go through that API. Um, and it doesn't have to be, but I hope that that's the case. I hope it's the API will be capable enough uh, to cover all the use cases uh, because of the benefits I described earlier. I really think that will be where the sweet spot is. And then still one level up is the level that has nothing to do with you. That is the virtual threads that get created by the web server, which mm -hmm. again will hopefully be most of them. Well, they can also be most of them if the other already take up 90%, but you know what I'm going at. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the web server... Switch, with the yeah. web server, it could be Project Helidon. I don't know whether you are aware of them. So it's also an Oracle project. So Project Helidon, they already have yes. support for virtual threads. And uh, yeah. they are also implementing microprofiles. Did they officially announce now? Like Because a couple of weeks ago, they tweeted that they uh, that they have an implementation that works with virtual threads, but they didn't like officially announce and support and document and all that. Did they do that by now? I'm pretty it, sure uh, it was an official announcement. I don't think I'm revealing something. But uh, it is like uh, um, they are working for that... I think they have the first announcement one year ago that they are already working on it. And uh, 
but the the project Helidon and uh, also Quarkus is working on it. And Quarkus is more exciting because the Quarkus also love the reactor way of things, which I don't like. So I really enjoy, you know, the simple Java way. So um, so the web service or cloud native runtimes, next generation, like Quarkus, uh, Micronaut, actually, and, and Helidon, uh, they will support that. And I know that Helidon, they are uh, they are working for, for a long time already with virtual threats. And um, which yeah, is so really what they did is, mm-hmm. yeah, so, so what they did is they, uh, they re-implemented and I, I mean, once again, I think it was an experiment, but I'm not sure. So what that is, they, re- they re-implemented their server, basically just use virtual threads, yeah. and then compared uh, to Netty. And they got, because Netty is like famous for being like really fast, doing yeah. uh, NIO, being like like super tuned to that, right? Yeah. And they got like really close. They got like, and, and that was, uh, that's of course a much simpler implementation. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, juggle byte buffers and things. Um, so, uh, I mean, like Netty juggles the byte buffers. We don't yeah. care as Netty users. Yeah, we're not, yeah, like, yeah. For us, it doesn't matter, but it matters for the simplicity of maintainability for the implementation. So one thing that I have to say, like, uh, I think there was Quarkus, uh, which was slightly annoying to me. I think it was there, the pull request that I saw, that somebody implemented this uh, the support, but they were worried about some performance characteristics. So they started to use reflection to break into the virtual threat pool and change some things and offer additional command line flags to I think once again I don't want to say it's 100% sure but I think it was Quarkus I should probably look that up Um, and so what I found annoying about this is so first of all it's great that these projects support Loom now that's that's really cool but but if you're unsure if you're unsure we should you know blame the spring guys they are larger so I say (laughs) (laughs) maybe yeah so So, look so let's not blame anybody specific let's just single out that pull request whoever opened it whatever project that was in and I know you have like uh, your influential items so I'm hoping that all the other maintainers of all the other Micronaut and whatever uh, Spark web micro framework that all those guys are listening Uh, so please Please, let's not go overboard with the premature optimization here. Loom is like, this is the first preview of Loom, right? So the chance that people are going to use this in production next week is not very high. So let's stick to just implementing support for virtual threads in the basic level, which means probably flip a switch and just get virtual threads. And then let's give the people time to try it out. Let's give uh, the JDK people time to, to check into virtual threads more and you know be sure that everything is tight. Let's just gather more experience together before we start realizing where there might be corner cases and how we can fix them but but because but if, i would say if corcus they they, they they are really obsessed and helidon as well about performance so both are crazy about performance yeah but if they have the insight already they can give you feedback and i would see such a pull request i mean could be very valuable right for the jdk developers because they see okay now we have some problem here right yeah but but do they because there's no like there's no uh, there is no benchmark attached to that assumption that that might be a problem. It says oh, okay. that we realized so there's like there's no big data. Like, no, no, I'm not talking like big data. I mean like there's no data to to back that up. There is no okay. actual user reports. That so came it was not useful. That. So they put this this pull request was not know. useful. So, Okay. No, no, no. So the pull request did uh, did implement virtual thread support in that web framework. So that part was 100% useful. That was great. Okay. But it also immediately came with this like questionable performance specifically, which was very annoying to me, is because at least one of those flags that they created is already offered by the JDK itself. And that is um, how large is the thread pool that runs your virtual threads? You can already configure this. You can give it a min size and a max size because there are certain situations where it has to grow and shrink. Mm-hmm. That, that was already there. So they re-implement something that was already there by using reflection to break into an internal API. And that means 
that you once again start to get to this issue of we're making internal updates, now something breaks externally. I don't mind that they're going up op- performance yeah. optimizing. Yeah, yeah. I it, mind it. In such a situation, I would just use the Sun Misk, Misk Unsafe class. It works perfectly, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it feels like it's like, can we, like, can we just like, I didn't care, so maybe I should have clarified that. It's okay that they do performance optimization, but please, can we not break into the internal API before it's even released? Can we not just at least have like a one release cycle? Let's say the JDK 19 release cycle, for example, where we like gather data and we figure out whether there is actually a problem. And if there is a problem, who can fix that better before we go hacking? Uh, that fell. I don't know. Like I didn't. I didn't yeah, yeah, enjoy but, the but part Nicola, it really depends on the tone of the pull request, right? Because if uh, if the external developer was maybe it was a motivated young developer and say, okay, cool, I can optimize something and give feedback to Oracle, is really excited. This is one thing. But if they wrote you back, you know, stupid Oracle, you have no idea about scalability, and uh, you should do this. This is a different situation, and it can absolutely happen that you actually. You know, uh, didn't thought about all the all the flags in JDK, so you implemented something which is not usable, maybe right. But it's really good that they did something and and you know contributed back, right? So I mean, this yeah, this. So it's very important. I, I mentioned the word annoying on purpose. I meant like I don't want to undermine the pull request. The pull request as a whole, it's great. Like it yeah. does something very important. It offers support. I just looked it up. I offered it's uh, it's a pull request by the way. I can give you a number on Quarkus. It's two four nine four two. Okay. Uh, so two four nine four two. That's the number of the pull request on Quarkus, and it's a great pull request. It says like, look, JDK nineteen is not even out. Loom is just a preview. We already support that. For like, so for people who right now use early access builds of Loom, uh, can activate virtual threads and then can use Quarkus. I'm not sure whether this is already released or at least like built Quarkus themselves. And that, that's that's amazing, right? So like, I'm I'm super on board with that. That's great that we get this this early. Just like the part that I find annoying. Once again, annoying doesn't mean I'm 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 uh, I, like I, I get aggravated. It's just like, do, did we really have to do this? Did we really have to start with also immediately starting to hack something? But uh, again, I'm just. But, saying, but the Quarkus I, guy is uh, hacking all the time. This is no the old extension mode in this hacking, so the optimizing the prefers, pre- performance whatever they can. But the Helidons are not better. Uh, they, I had a chat already on the podcast. You know how uh, Helidon is. They're obsessed about performance. But I got your point. I will put it in the yeah. show notes. But uh, yeah. I'm really glad. Yeah, we don't have to overemphasize it either. So let's just stick with. It's great that Quark's, Quarkus already it's already merged. That they already support uh, virtual threads and other web frameworks are sure or web servers are sure to follow. And I think that's very important because it means that users can try. Because as I said, like we talked about this, like who is going to create your virtual threads and how. And I think uh, many virtual threads will just be created by you configuring, for example, Quarkus or whatever you're using, uh, or Helidon or Spring. Uh, well, not Spring. I think not Spring is on control of the threads. But anyway, uh, Spring Boot maybe. So you're configuring uh, your server yeah. with which uh, kinds of threads you want. And that should take care of much of that. So you, you ideally... I don't think there's a, there's a lot, lots of reasons to go with threat builder of virtual whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like that's very low level, right? So ideally, yeah. it's the it's web server. Next, you use structured concurrency. Yeah, next, you use the virtual threat executor, and then the other ones is very low level. Yeah, and don't annoy Nikolai with pull requests, right? Yeah, or I drag you on Adam's podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So uh, now we covered, you know, the ten uh, percent of Java nineteen features, uh, which was uh, which was. Um, works as expected where people can find you on the internet Your yeah classic answer. yeah so uh so i'm nipa fx uh-huh. uh so it's nikolai parlock and like fx like java fx so nipa fx on twitter on github on twitch on youtube 
But what I also do is I work for Oracle as a Java developer relation. Wait, what? Developer advocate. So on the Java platform group at Oracle. Wow, that was hard. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and what I'm doing there is, for example, I'm creating the Inside Java newscast, which you can find on the Java YouTube channel. Now, if you go to YouTube and search for Java, you will not find it for reasons that are beyond us. I think it's Google. No, seriously, I don't know what, it, what the reason is. Uh, so go to youtube.com slash Java. Uh -huh. You will find the Inside Java newscast there. You will find uh, the Jeb Cafe, which uh, is something that um, uh, that Jose Pomar does. I think he has also something on virtual threads. Uh, yeah. He did something a couple of weeks ago. I think there's another one coming up or it was even just released. Uh, you will find Billy Corando, my colleague. He does these uh, YouTube shorts and you can also find him on Twitter where he does his sip of Java. So the sip of Java also appears on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so you can find me under NipahFX and then also go to uh, youtube.com slash Java or go to dev.java. Or yeah, by the way, if you're interested in all this, like this was all just advertisement. Now a serious tip: yeah. if you wanna, if you're interested in how this things, how these things develop, and you wanna get, uh, be, stay close to that, go to insight.java. It's also a resource that we create, created. Well, I don't wanna say we. It's mostly just my colleague David Delabessi and uh, Chad Aramura. Uh, they're like, it's it's great. Like David maintains that thing like crazy. So it's uh, it basically pulls like there is a new Jap. There was an interesting mail on the mailing list. There's a good blog post by somebody from the Java platform, Google Oracle over there. So it pulls all the most important resources on this developing stuff. So it's really inside Java. It looks at what is going on uh, in the development phase. So it, And you will also find it aggregates also the newscast and the Jepka phase. Yep. So that's a one-stop one shop stop, one stop. How the? Okay. So that's a great stop. <laughs> this is <laughs> a perfect stop. I'm looking at this right now, and this is very minimalistic with lots of information. You know, no ads, nothing. It's just a link like uh, J Shell, the Java Apple mitigated relocation degradation. So there's like a, a newscast that is like, um, like it was yeah. uh, how it's called Java blocks back then. Remember that 15 years ago? But this was more noisy than this. Dude, 15 years ago, I was like um, in the kindergarten. Young. Okay. Let's just say young, yeah. No, well, not that young. But that's also, by the way, for all of you people who are uh, not that young. Uh, I was also young. I was very young. I remember I couldn't read, but I say Java blocks. This is what I know. I was a very okay. young. This was like, yeah. Uh, My mom taught me that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's uh, based on RSS feed too. So that's pretty great. So that's like very easy to uh, yeah. keep up with everything. So yeah, yeah. thank you. It was a, a, thank a you. great conversation. Uh, uh, I may, make me think again. And uh, yeah, I'm already looking forward to cover you know, the remaining uh, 20 Java exactly. 19 topics. Because to go back to Creed to the beginning of the episode, I did claim that JDK 90 was like the most exciting release in years and probably for years to come. And so we just talked about Loom and I want to defend that claim with more amazing stuff next time we meet. I'm only afraid that we won't cover all the features until uh, before Java 20 comes out. This this can happen uh, to us, you know. <laughs> look, like, let's, let's say the end of the year. I think we can manage by the end okay, of the year. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> See you then. Bye. See you.